Good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us. My name is Sydney Bennett. I am a healthcare account lead with Tech Systems. Um, Tech Systems is a global technology services company, and I also serve on the Louisiana HIMSS board, where I oversee membership. Um, for those of you that don't know, HIMSS is a information technology uh, healthcare information technology society that is national and global, um, and each state has its own specific chapter. Um, so I'm very excited today to be chatting with Dr. Veronica Gillespie-Bell from Ochsner Health System out of New Orleans, Louisiana. Um, we're going to be talking today about racial disparities in healthcare, everything from maternal death rates in healthcare today to percentage of providers and healthcare workers that are people of color and a lot more. So um, Dr. Gillespie-Bell, I would love for you to introduce yourself. Your resume is quite extensive. There's no way I would be able to, um, to do you justice with your introduction. So if you don't mind, please. Oh, thank you so much for that. I'm happy to be here with you all today. Uh, I'm a board certified OBGYN practicing at Ochsner Health here in the New Orleans area. Uh, I've been with Ochsner for 20 years because I also did my residency here. Um, throughout the Ochsner system, I serve as the senior site lead section head for women's services here at Ochsner Kenner. Uh, I'm also the medical director of quality for women's services, and I've been in that role since 2015. Um, I also, um, my clinical interest is in fibroids, and so I run our minimally invasive center for treating fibroids. Um, my role, though, in terms of health equity extends beyond Oshner. Uh, I'm the medical director of the Louisiana Perinatal Quality Collaborative and the Pregnancy Associated Mortality Review. And for people that are listening, they may be saying, that's just a bunch of words. What does that even mean? <laughs> and so basically, the Pregnancy Associated Mortality Review is a committee that reviews all maternal deaths in Louisiana defined as the death of an individual at the time of pregnancy up to one year of the end of pregnancy. And we review this data um, to see not only what is happening with the numbers and the statistics, but where, where are those areas of prevention? Where can we make recommendations to decrease the number of maternal deaths? Um, and then from that, I also lead the Perinatal Quality Collaborative, with work, which works with birthing facilities to implement evidence-based practices to improve maternal outcomes based on the recommendations that come out of our PAMA report. And we always do um, all of our work through a lens of equity uh, with the hope that every birthing person, every family in Louisiana will experience a safe, equitable, and, and dignified birth. Well, that is extremely impressive. Um, you know, most people have not done near the amount of schooling that you've done. And, you know, most people out there hold one job, let alone like seven that you just rattled <laughs> off. So I'm just curious, what is your inspiration? What's your motivation? Um, you know, I think there's a, there's a few things. I would say I'm motivated by my patients. Um, I'm motivated by those patients that come into my office, um, those pregnant individuals that, that look at me and say, um, if you're not there when I give birth, am I going to die? Um, and so that motivates me to look for system changes and, and how do we improve the system so that everybody that comes into the, the birthing space can feel that they're going to receive equitable care. It sh their care should not be dependent on me. I'm one ind individual. And so that motivates me to do the work to make it better in the system. From the work that I do around fibroids, I actually decided when I was in, in college, um, I, it was my end of my junior year, going into my senior year, my mom needed to have a hysterectomy for fibroids. And so I hadn't heard of fibroids. I didn't know what that was. And so I started doing research. And what I found was 
there wasn't really anything to do other than having a hysterectomy. That was it. Or taking a medicine to have a more minimally invasive hysterectomy. And so at that point, I said, that's it. I'm going to find the cure for fibroids, which that's a little bit unrealistic, um, finding the cure. But I've really made my clinical practice around making sure that women have treatment options, that a hysterectomy is not the only option. Um, I participated in clinical trials to further um, the, the advancement of medicine and to make sure that women have options. And so that is um, what pushes me in, in, in that direction. And then I think in terms of the of, of equity, um, I'm a Black woman and um, I've experienced some of the inequities that our Black mothers face, um, that our mothers of color face, our American Indian, Native American mothers uh, face the, these disparities as well. And so um, when I think about, you know, that is that these statistics are my statistics. These are my 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 family statistics. This is these are the statistics statistics of my sister-in-law, of my cousins, of my other family members. And so that pushes me as well. And then I think the just the overall thing, I, I believe faith is very important to me. And I believe that God has given me a lot of opportunities. And I think from that it's important for me to take advantage of whatever opportunities have been put in front of uh, in front of me that he provided me these talents and so it's not to serve myself it's to serve others and so I look for those opportunities to do that there's so much you just said there that is so powerful so thank you for sharing some of those details um, I'm curious the situation with your mom that you spoke about did you want to become a doctor before that happened or is that was that your inspiration for becoming a doctor I actually decided I wanted I decided when I was in 10th grade that I wanted to be a doctor, but I was um, in college. It was my junior year. I was home from I'm from Meridian, Mississippi, and I was home for Christmas break and I was going to see my gynecologist for my checkup because at that time you had to go at 18. And so um, he said, oh, you know, I hear you want to be a doctor. What kind of doctor do you want to be? I said, oh, I want to be a pediatrician. I love kids. And he said, yeah, you don't love them when they're vomiting on you and they're crying. You just want to be a pediatrician because you've never been to any other doctor. And I thought about it. He was right. That was the only doctor I even knew was a pediatrician and maybe an ophthalmologist because I because of wearing contacts and glasses. Um, and he said, come back, um, come back tonight and 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 we're gonna we're gonna talk about this a little bit more. And so he really did over the time I was there for Christmas break, take me under his wing and introduce me to obstetrics and gynecology. And by the end of that, that two weeks, I was sold. I was like, that this this is what I'm meant to do. I get to deliver babies, I get to spend time with my patients, I get to do surgery. And, and develop these lifelong relationships. And so that was really what put me um, onto the field of, of OBGYN. I love that. Thank you for sharing. <laughs> um, so uh, along the same routes, only 5% of providers in the United States today are Black. I'm just curious, what barriers did you face on your way to becoming a doctor? Yeah, I think there are a lot of barriers um, that some I faced and some that that I didn't face, but I do know that other um, other black and brown individuals do face. Um, first of all, it is very expensive to even attempt to be a physician. Um, when we think about the standardized tests that you need to take to, to pass just to get into medical school, which I'm not 100% that they even correlate with your ability to be a physician, but it's one of the obstacles and hurdles that you have to take. And almost everybody that I know took some type of a Kaplan course or a Princeton course or some type of course to prepare them for taking um, taking the medical, medical school admission test, the MCAT. 
Um, and, uh, you know, that's a very expensive course that to take to prepare for, for just a test. The application process is very expensive. And so that the, the, the burden of the financial part is one part of it. I think the other piece, other piece, even as younger individuals, um, like you said, black and black individuals represent 5% of practice physicians, 6.5% Latino. So it's not very likely that as a young child, you are going to see a physician that looks like you. It doesn't feel very achievable if you don't see someone that looks like you in that role. And so I think that that even in itself is a barrier as um, younger kids are deciding what they want to be when they grow up. So what would you say to those younger kids that are deciding what they want to be when they grow up? And even some that may already know they want to be a doctor, what, what advice would you give them? that I can do it so anybody can do it. <laughs> so I feel like, you know, I think I think we look at, at physicians and we look at people that have been down that road and we see them succeeding. And so it, that, again, makes it seem like, oh, my gosh, can I do this? The answer is yes, you can do this. Um, find mentorship to help guide you. I was so very fortunate to have Dr. Purvis to take me under his wing um, and just introduce me to, to, to medicine and to obstetrics and gynecology and just and to make sure I was doing the things that I needed to do. I'm also very grateful and thankful um, that I attended Xavier University of Louisiana for medical, I mean, for college, um, because at the uh, Xavier was number one for placed in blacks in, in, in medical school still is. And they invested in me to make sure that I was going to get to where I need to be. And so as you are choosing where you're going to matriculate, where your education is going to be spent, think about choosing a place that's going to invest in you to make sure that you that you are able to achieve your, your dream. That's great. Um, so diversity in healthcare. There's some people that are out there that might say, why is this even important? Why do we need diversity with providers? What's the big deal? What would you say to those folks? So representation matters. Um, there's plenty of data that shows that in, when there's concordance um, of a race, meaning that the, the patient, the physician concordance, um, they have the same race, that there are better health outcomes. Um, patients report greater levels of satisfaction and trust when they see someone that looks like them. Um, there's data that shows for babies that are in the NICU, there is decreased infant mortality when there's concordance of race between the patient and the physician. There's data um, that came out of uh, JAMA that shows for primary care uh, physicians that are when there's concordance between them and the patients, the patients have improved outcomes, um, even from a primary care standpoint. There is a level of trust um, when you walk into a room and someone looks like you. Uh, I mentioned it for even those aspiring to be a doctor, but as a patient, it's hard sometimes, I think, for us to put ourselves in patient shoes, but you're walking into a scenario where you really have lost most of your power, right? Because you don't, you're 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 here in a in a world that you don't necessarily understand. Language is being used that you don't understand. Someone is giving you advice that is going to make a decision that literally is life or death. There is a level of trust because you know you have shared experience when you walk in that room and someone looks like you. And so when we think about that and we think that we, we have data that shows that there's greater health outcomes when we have that concordance of race, where is this leaving our black and brown patients when the chances of them seeing someone that looks like them is very, very low? And I'm talking about physicians, but I think if we looked on the nursing standpoint, it would be exactly the same profile. Um, when we look at our residents, it's the same. The breakdown is the same. Six, it's about 6% Latino, Hispanic, 
5% um, Black or African-American. So we're not even building a pipeline that will increase diversity in practicing physicians for eight, 12 years down the road. One of the bigger barriers that you mentioned is that medical school is very expensive. How do you, what are some options of how you fix that? Well, that's going to take um, donors and some federal policy, I think. Um, you know, we, we just heard earlier this week um, a, a wonderful, wonderful indi individual um, who donated millions of dollars um, to one of the medical schools so that no one will have to pay tuition, that they will be able to go tuition free for many, many, many years. And so I think that that is an amazing, amazing commitment to society, to the medical field for her to do that. Um, and so I think more investments like that. Um, I also know, uh, know of uh, um, uh, Mr. Bloomberg also gave a, a fair amount of money, I think to Morehouse, I can't remember which, which school, but if we have more private donors that are supporting education, especially in our historically black college and colleges and universities, um, our HBCU medical schools as well. I, I think that that is, um, that is that is one thing. I think the federal government and a lot that they are doing right now for loan forgiveness, I think is also um, phenomenal. Um, just things that, that I think maybe some of us don't think about when um, you are black or brown, it, it, is, it is very common um, that you are the first in your, your family to go to college, to go to medical school. Um, you may be achieving a financial um, situation that others in your family don't have. And it's also very common that we take care of our other family members. Um, I'm thinking of one of my friends right now that's in that situation. And so when you're thinking about um, the ability to build generational wealth, when you're graduating from medical school with $200,000 <laughs> in the hole before you've even started residency, it's going to be very difficult for you to be one of those individuals that that builds generational wealth. Where I know of other uh, other individuals that have gone to medical school that are that are in the majority that someone paid for their medical school education, and so they get to graduate and start building a life. They get to buy a house. They get to start building this wealth, this generational wealth, because they don't have that chip on their shoulder or this or this monkey on their back of this two hundred thousand dollars. Um, that they're indebted, um, you know, to their for for their education. Well, you're making me want to go donate to an HBCU as soon as we hang up this call. Um, <laughs> so I will be researching that when we hang up. But um, one thing you said before is that equal care does not equal equitable care, and I thought that was really powerful. Can you explain that to some of our listeners a little bit more? Sure. If I could pull up this picture, I love, I love, Angus McGuire has a, has a picture of uh, three men standing on boxes. So when we talk about equal care, that means everybody gets the same care. What we want to get to is equitable care where everybody gets what they need to get the same outcome. So on this, 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 in this picture, there's three gentlemen, one's uh, very short, one's probably average height, the other one is tall. They're trying to see a baseball game and there's a fence in the way. They all get the same resource. Well, the guy that is tall can already see over the fence, so he doesn't need that resource. The guy that's average height, that was perfect. Now he can see over the fence. But the guy that was short, he got the same resource as everybody else, but he still can't see over the fence, so he still is not able to get that outcome. 
And so we want to make sure that we're meeting patients where they are to give them the resource that they need to get to that ultimate outcome, which is great health. And so when we're talking about equitable care, it's given the same quality of care, not necessarily the same care. And I commonly hear, hear physicians when we do talks or give talks on equity um, and bias, they say, well, I treat all my patients the same. Well, one, that's probably not true. But if you do treat all your patients the same, that's not the goal. The goal is to treat your patients, meet them where they are so that they can all have the same outcome, but give them the same quality of care. So what's an example of that in real life? In sure. So sure. So um, so the Alliance for Innovation of Maternal Health, AIM, tells us that patients that have severe hypertension in pregnancy, when they're discharged from the hospital, they need to be seen within 72 hours of discharge. If I'm a physician and I go on the wards and I'm making rounds and I see two patients and they, they have severe hypertension and I give each of them an appointment to come see me in three days. Okay, well, my first patient who has a day nanny, a night nanny, she has someone to watch her child, she has transportation, she's probably going to make that appointment. My other patient who does not have transportation, she doesn't have anybody helping her at home. She's an hourly wage worker who has no paid family medical leave and is trying to get back to work. She probably is not going to come in for that appointment. What I should have done was, first of all, do a social determinants of health screen at the beginning to know where my patients stand, where their resources are, where they're missing resources. And for that patient who is not going to be able to come into the office because they don't have the resource to come in, maybe I send them home with a blood pressure cuff or I make some arrangement so that a doula can come into the home or maybe they have a, a, home a nursing home visitor that can come in and check her blood pressure in the home so she doesn't have to actually leave. Maybe I use telehealth in some way. And so that's just an example of if I give the same care to everybody, I'm not gonna have the same, everybody's not gonna have the same outcome. I have to meet patients where they are to give them the resource that they need. So those social determinants of health screenings, are those mandated that physicians give those or no? They're not mandated as far as I know, um, definitely not from a state standpoint. Um, it is encouraged uh, by CMS and Joint Commission. They are mandating some level of determinants, social, de social determinants of health. Um, and I think most institutions have incorporated it into their EHR as much as they can. Um, but the, the nuances of who is doing the screening, who gets the information, how that is then connected to resources, I don't think that has been worked out quite as well. So maybe that's an opportunity for us to work on. Um, one thing along these same lines that you said before that was extremely impactful to me is that the maternal death rate for Black women with a college degree is 2.3 times higher than that of a white woman with a high school diploma. I don't know if you have any comments there on that. Yeah, when we look at our health disparities, it's always going to boil down to two things, systemic racism and implicit bias. Systemic racism, we see that in our social determinants of health, and we already have kind of started talking about that. One thing I will say about social determinants of health that maybe the audience doesn't know, 80% of clinical outcomes are actually related to social determinants of health. So the little 15 minutes that patients spend in, the, in the, uh, the doctor's office with me is not as impactful as what is happening in their environment where they eat, love, work, live, and play. And so that's one part of the disparities. But even when we adjust for socioeconomic factors in this situation, 
we're talking about black women with a college degree compared to white women you know with less than a high school diploma we still see a difference and that difference is because of implicit bias and basically implicit bias if if those are not if people are not familiar with that term is our unconscious bias our brains are inundated with all of the information that is coming in at one time. Our brain cannot possibly process all of that information. And instead, it takes shortcuts. And these shortcuts are made by patterns that we have already developed. And those patterns have come because of our social conditioning. And so that's that social conditioning, those shortcuts then impact how we see, treat, deliver care to individuals that, that are, are of a certain race. Um, and so when we see that bias come into healthcare, we see that we don't provide equitable care for all individuals. And again, we see that when we are now looking at this data where socioeconomic factors or social determinants of health have been adjusted for, and we're still seeing a difference in, in outcomes. So how, I mean, implicit bias, the stereotypes that exist out there, how do we even begin to, you know, alter the curve of that? So there's a few things. I think first of all is naming it, Name, naming that it is what it is, that we accept that that is um, impacting our health care and how we deliver care, and then having a desire to want to change it. Our bias is unconscious. It's like a habit. You're not going to change it if you're not intentionally trying to change it. There is um, a social psychologist, Patricia Devine, who has done um, studies, multiple studies on stereotypes and bias, but she has shown that you can effectively change your bias. Um, and there are steps to do that. And again, it has to be intentional. Um, and so, you know, so that that's one part of it. I think the other part is that we use data. Um, one of the things that we do on the, the Louisiana Perinatal Quality Collaborative side, from a quality standpoint, we know what our outcomes are. We know that the disparities are there, but outcomes are related to structures and processes, processes being how we actually deliver care. So one of the things that we do is for things that are process measures, really for all measures, but specifically those things that are process measures, we ask our hospital teams to stratify, uh, disaggregate their um, data by race and ethnicity. And so that then becomes a data point so that you can see that that process is not being provided equitably. So I think it is that combination of wanting to change and also finding that pathway for how we change. And the data is very powerful for that. I want to um, hit on a few questions from some of our members. Um, so this question is from Sanjay. He says, what steps are being taken to reduce the potential worsening of healthcare disparities as a result of latent bias in healthcare algorithms? So um, another great question. I think, again, just this is an example, because it's been named and people, people have talked about it, one of those algorithms um, was actually on the maternal side was in the VBAC calculator, the vaginal birth after cesarean section calculator. So this is a calculator that was around for many years. I've used it many times um, in my own with my own patients. It's a, it's a, a calculator where a, a patient who's had a C-section is now in for their next pregnancy and try and decide if they're going to do another C-section or if they're going to try to have a trial of labor after cesarean to have a vaginal birth. Well, in this calculator, it'll tell you like the chances that this is going to be successful is this percent or that percent. Previously, it had race and ethnicity as part of the calculator. And if the only thing you changed was race to Black or Hispanic, it decreased the success rate. 
And so there is, let me also say this and be very crystal, crystal clear that race is not a biological condition. It is a social construct. So there's nothing biologically different about black or Hispanic women that their success rate should be lower than a white woman. And so again, this is has been named, it's been um been been said, it's been put in there, uh, put out there how this is a, a racist way of delivering care and it's incorrect. And so that algorithm has been updated. And so race and ethnicity have been removed, and so that it can be uh, fair and it can be equitable. Now, that's just one example. There are other algorithms, I think, that exist in our healthcare system. I think right now with the uh, with AI and how much we are trying to incorporate AI into everything that we do, including into the healthcare system, I think if we're not careful, then we're going to see disparities worsen because of even AI. Because if AI is going to figure out and give, for example, if they're gonna if AI is gonna give me advice on how I should manage a patient. Well, where is it going to get that advice from? It's going to get it from how doctors have practiced. Okay, well, that's already flawed. We know that because we we already talked about bias and how that affects the way we deliver care. It's going to get it give advice by maybe evidence based literature. Okay, well, black black and brown people and women have been underrepresented in evidence based medicine and in research. So again, we have if we use an AI, we've already built bias into AI, and so I do see a potential um, a potential for worsening disparities and and more bias even with AI. And so I think it's important again that we name that, and so those individuals that are in in charge of creating some of these algorithms can understand and can take that into consideration. This question is from Pamela. She says, do you have any specific examples where technology or healthcare workflow was shown to be biased and what actions we might take to prevent it? I think, well, that's, that is the two right there. Um, the one, uh, the, the AI bias, um, and then also, uh, again, with a VBAC calculator. I think it's important for us as healthcare providers to think about, and it's real, I will say this, it is really hard. It actually was um, me giving a lecture to medical students where one of the medical students brought it up and I had not thought about it. For us as, as healthcare providers, we, there's a lot that we have to undo that's been put into our medical education. We all, through medical school, you're taught these little tidbits and little clips and almost little cliff notes. If the patient is white and they're having pulmonary issues and they're a childbearing age and um, and it's a, it's a male and he can't get, and, and he has something wrong with his sperm, then he must have cystic fibrosis. Well, guess what? Black people have cystic fibrosis too, but we have put race in as a factor in how we make our decisions because that's what we've been taught in our, in our medical school training. And so I think for us, it is so hard because of bias from social conditioning, but also this is how we've been trained. I think that every time we're making a management decision, we have to think about that. Am I making this decision because I'm including race? And why am I including race in, in that decision? And so again, it's, it's unconscious and it is hidden. And so I think it makes it that much harder. And so we just have to intentionally every day decide as healthcare providers, again, making decisions about healthcare, what are we making that decision? What, what's the basis for that decision? Sure. I know you mentioned the calculator, but what are some other things that you have seen change um, in recent years? And then what are some things that you're hopeful will change in the near future? 
Well, one of the things I'll, I'll just a little bit that I'll mention, um, they coming out of uh, out of COVID, um, I was doing a panel uh, about COVID and the intensive care unit doctors were saying how now they are relooking at um, oxygenation status and being able to determine oxygenation from the pulse ox. And that really came out of out of COVID and having Black individuals um, more impacted by COVID and being in the ICU and understanding that the oxygenation status may not have been actual. And then going back to the research, well, what was this based off of? It was based off of white men in Europe. And so just being able to challenge the foundations of our learnings. And so there is more being done um, to, to look at, at things around, uh, around oxygenation and respiratory and things like that. Um, I think the other thing that I've noticed is I've I personally have had conversations about bias and its impact on our outcomes for many, many years now um, when we were calling it cultural competency back when I finished residency in 2008, um, having conversations to actually using the word bias. And I was met with much eye rolling <laughs> and, um, you know, just not really even wanting to engage except for a few people to now I have people seeking out my recommendations and wanting to have these conversations and wanting to learn more and wanting to hear what they what they can do to change these outcomes. And so I think that that is the first step is just the the awareness has changed. It's, cha it's changed from denial to awareness to I think the next step is action. And so I think that's, uh, again, makes me very, very hopeful for the future and the, and the direction that we will continue to go. Awesome. Um, so a lot of our members within HEMS are part of the information, information technology field within healthcare. Um, you know, is, is there anything that you would like us to keep in mind as we're working toward advancing healthcare through technology? Yeah, I think the the thing that I would say is just remember that one size doesn't fit all. <laughs> um, again, we design, I think, things um, in technology and medicine in general, we design for the majority, but the majority is not having the worst health outcomes. And so we need to design for everybody that's going to be impacted. We can't, you know, we have made recommendations on, I'll give you just another example. There's a, there's a particular medication that now has a black box warning on it when that medication is being administered to women. That's because when they did the clinical trials, they didn't have any women. And then when it got uh, aftermarket was, was now available and women started taking it, women started dying <laughs> and from the dose that was there. So we don't want to, you know, and that's a, that's an example from a pharmaceutical standpoint, but technology can be the same, the same way. We want to make sure that we're designing not just for the majority, but for, for the one, for the, quite frankly, for those patients who have um, the greatest disparity, because if we, if we design for those patients, then the health outcomes will increase for everybody. And so we want to think about that. I'm also a big proponent of patient partners and having patients at the table. We commonly design solutions. We design programs. We design all of these things for patients, but we never talk to patients. And so um, I'm a big proponent of having them at the table during the design process to be able to tell us what, what is needed in different community settings 
and how it's, it's accessed. I think there's data that shows uh, for black and brown individuals, they don't access technology as much. And then try, but trying to understand well, why is that? Is it distrust of the technology? Why is that distrust there? What can we do to build the trust um, for, that, for that community and for those individuals? And so just thinking about that as we're designing solutions. Um, that's great, thank you so much. So I'm not a healthcare provider. I don't work at a hospital. You know, there's a lot of folks out there that might be saying, well, how do I, how can I really make a difference? How can I play a role in this? Um, what would you say to those folks? I would say a few things. One, creating awareness. Um, now that you've heard this, hopefully this has educated you to some degree and you can educate someone else. Um, and whether you're in healthcare or not, a lot of people impact healthcare. You know, as you said, you're more on the technology side, but that still impacts healthcare, even if you're not in the healthcare system. And so spreading the knowledge, um, I think is important. The other thing is voting. Um, and that's been, I think, something I've been trying to um, increase awareness um, about um, even amongst the community. Um, again, we know social determinants of health determine 80% of our clinical outcomes. And so most of the social determinants of health are impacted by policy. And the policy is impacted by who we elect and who we put into office to make these policies. So being aware of kind of the statistics, the disparities, the things that are driving the disparities, and just always keeping that in mind when you're making your decisions, no matter what your field is, and making those decisions in your field, making those decisions about who you choose to vote for. Um, all of those things I think are important, and I think everybody has a role to, to, to play, especially when we're, when we're talking about healthcare and health disparities. Great, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time today. You're certainly a very inspirational woman. So thank you for all the work that you're doing out there. We really appreciate it. Thank you. My pleasure.